everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 27 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about When Harry Met Sally on your, right, I said that, podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Today we are joined by special guest Lonnie Diane Rich. Lonnie is a story expert, the owner of Chipperish Media, and podcaster extraordinaire behind the podcast Jed Bartlett is My President, How Story Works, and Big Strong Yes. Welcome, Lonnie, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh my God, thank you so much for asking me. I have this thing about romantic comedies. I love romantic comedies. And uh, when we talked about me doing an episode with you guys, I was like, when Harry met Sally, it's got to be it. And that you hadn't seen it warms my little heart. I love that there's all this stuff. And I, I have the same reaction every single time, even though I've known you for a long time. And I know your history. And I know you haven't engaged with a lot of, of, of stuff. But every now, but every time you guys have a new episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, I'm like, you haven't seen that? You know, like, that's always my response. So I love that I get to be here. I'm so honored that I get to be here when you first experience When Harry Met Sally. I am really glad you wanted to do this episode because it gave me a reason to watch When Harry Met Sally. So thank you. Oh, good. Before we get into uh, talking about the film, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who supported us in the first two weeks of our Patreon. We've just been thrilled by the support and we've had some wonderful feedback from everyone. Um, If you've not had a chance to look, please head on over to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing and you can become a patron of our shows and help support the network. Uh, Lani, you've had a lot of success with Patreon. It's helped you develop and do some really interesting things with your podcasting. Oh, yeah. Patreon has been everything because I've never been a big fan of advertising, you know, because Mm. you have to podcasting is expensive. And you know, you want to do it because you love the work and because you love what you do. But advertising to me always feels, you know, a little disingenuous, because if somebody pays me to advertise, then I'm sort of, you know, supporting that product. And what if I don't like that product? What if I don't like that company? You know, it's a complicated kind of thing. But if you want to do this work, you know, it's it's very, very difficult to fund it all yourself. And mm-hmm. when you have the people that you are beholden to, you know, are not advertisers, but rather the people who love what you do and who feel strongly enough about what you do to kick you a buck or 10 bucks or 20 bucks mm-hmm. a month, whatever it is that they want to give you. Um, it's it's wonderful because the, the people that you are doing it for are the same people that you owe everything to. And it's nice to have that be you know the same group of people so like you're serving one master you know the people who love what you do and who care enough about it to kick you a little money every month and make it possible for you to do the things you do and also possible to do more things you know it, may, it mm. makes all of that possible so patreon supporters as far as i'm concerned are the best human beings in the world and they also make the work available to the people who don't have that there are a lot of people who love what you do who would love to give you money but they can't because you know, times are tough and things are difficult. People work really hard and sometimes they don't have extra money at the end of the month to throw into something like that. So the Patreon supporters not only support you because they love what you do, but they have this incredible generosity of spirit that makes them able to give you money that other people can't give you um, to make it possible for you to do this so that the people who get it for free can get it for free because of the generosity of the Patreon supporters. So I am a huge, huge lover of that whole system. I love Patreon. I love the people at Patreon. And I so appreciate the supporters. And I'm so excited that you guys are getting support. I'm a supporter of Eloquent Gushing. I love what you do. And I'm very excited to see how you move forward. Yeah, we've got some great plans. So we're looking forward to it too. 
Terrific. So, When Harry Met Sally. Mandy, why have you never watched this film before? Oh, you guys. I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. This movie is made specifically to delight me. Lonnie, I'm right there with you with romantic comedies. And so... <laughs> All I can do is like chalk this up to my misguided youth when I thought old movies were awful. <laughs> I mean, I don't know because I should have watched this movie years ago. Well, you know, better late than never, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and you had this wonderful experience of seeing it for the first time that you can share with everybody. I mean, that's what makes this show, Pop Culturally Deprived, so fantastic <laughs> is that we all get to like kind of vicariously through you go back and experience these things we love again for the first time. I think it's brilliant. And hopefully I end up loving these things that everybody else loves too. I always feel really bad when I don't. So I'm really excited that I loved this one. Yay. <laughs> so I was putting together the history and production information for this movie. And oh my gosh, you guys, there's so much out there. Trying to narrow it down was hard. Um, so I am just pulling together kind of just the bare bones information about this movie. And most people probably already know the rest anyway. When Harry Met Sally was released on July 29, 1989, and is a romantic comedy written by Nora Ephron and directed by Rob Reiner. The two had wanted to do a project together, but they didn't yet have anything to work with. So they met for lunch one day, and the seeds were planted that eventually grew into this hit film. Rob told Nora stories of his life as a single man after divorce, and the character of Harry, played by Billy Crystal, was based on these stories. Sally, played by Meg Ryan, was based on Ephron and some of her friends. When Efron was writing the screenplay, she would often interview people who worked for the production company to give her more source material to work with. Those interviews were rewritten and shot with actors and appeared throughout the film. The movie had a budget of $18 million and grossed $92.8 million at the box office in North America. Nora Efron was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay, but she lost to Tom Schulman for Dead Poets Society. And in 2004, it was adapted for the stage in a play that starred Luke Perry and Allison Hannigan. I don't even have to try with the Buffy reference here. It just dropped into my lap. <laughs> there it is right there. I had no idea. I don't know how I, somehow I missed that, that Allison Hannigan played Sally in a stage version of When Harry Met Sally. But if that's on YouTube, I got to go find that. <laughs> I didn't have time to look, but I'm really hoping there are at least photos or clips or something because mm. I kind of really need to see that. Oh, yeah. And you got a dual uh, Buffy reference because Luke Perry, of course, was in the original Buffy yes. the Vampire Slayer movie, which was terrible, but it doesn't matter because it's Buffy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Buffy is one of those movies that I don't care how bad it is. I will watch it every time I see it on television. Just because it started the whole thing. It started the thing that changed television, but that's a different discussion. I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> if you'd like more of Lonnie's thoughts on Buffy, go to her YouTube channel and watch her vlog. Still pretty. <laughs> yes, like tons of, of thoughts about Buffy in there. So I can completely see Alison Hannigan doing it when you think of her, her role in How I Met Your Mother. It's oh, a yeah. really similar character, so I can definitely see that coming through. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Well, if you, like me, have not seen When Harry Met Sally, it is a rom-com about two mismatched people who keep running into one another over the years. Eventually, well, it's a rom-com. You know what happens. So how did everybody watch the film? Matthew, how did you watch this one? Uh, this one was on Sky Cinema, so I watched it when I came home from holiday. Lonnie, how'd you watch it? Well, I gotta tell you, old school DVD, y'all. 
I mean, I got, I had the DVD <laughs> of this. I've had it forever. I take it out, you know, every couple of years and watch it again. And uh, so I was I was real super old school with this. I was really disappointed to find that this was not available streaming anywhere, or at least on the streaming subscription services. <laughs> I had seen a couple of screenshots that were branded by Hulu, and so I thought for sure Hulu had it, but apparently they don't anymore. Oh. So I ended up having to rent it from Amazon. Oh, well, it's worth every penny. It was good. It was good. <laughs> Mandy, you've said that you love uh, rom-coms. What was your expectation for this one when you went into it? At this point in my life, I expected to enjoy it because I honestly haven't seen a romantic comedy that I've hated. I mean, I've seen bad romantic comedies, but even the worst romantic comedy is still going to be something I like. You're just like me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I am with this movie is I just, you know, it's a romantic comedy, Meg Ryan. There was no way I wasn't not going to like it. Right. I'm, I'm feeling a little odd man out here. I'm not the biggest fan of romantic comedy. Uh, but I think it's my thing of I like to watch something that kind of mm, challenges, does something a bit different, and it's not a genre that ever, oh, there's not many films that really go, oh, yeah, that was a different sort of romantic comedy about two people getting together. Uh, well, okay, now, I have to make an argument about this, right? <laughs> this is one of the things that always drives me crazy, is that people tend to think that if you know how the story is going to go, that if you know that these two people are going to fall in love, that suddenly the story has no value. If you know what's going to happen, if Bruce Willis is in an action movie, you know he's not going to die, he's going to be fine, right? You know, unless it's Armageddon. Hmm. Spoilers, anyway. <laughs> the whole point is, is that the predictability of a story is not its main value. The, the surprise and the twist is something that we fetishize in our culture, but it's not the value of the story. You can tell the same story over and over and over again. Look at fairy tales. We've been telling Cinderella. We've been telling Sleeping Beauty for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We've been telling Hamlet for hundreds of years. Um, it's not about knowing what's going to happen or how it's going to end or any of that stuff. It's about the journey. It's about the experience. About It's about how all of those things happen. Happen. So my argument is that just because we know they're going to fall in love and get together does not in any way detract from the value of a romantic comedy. I'm stepping off my soapbox. You guys continue your show. <laughs> and, and we've we've discussed spoilers before, um, and, and yeah. we have slightly different viewpoints on it. But it's not even uh, it's not even the the spoiler. It's the when someone tells me the premise of two weeks notice. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I needed to go and see that film to know what I was going to be taking out of it. And it, it's well, not so much a surprise. It's just, and, and there are, as we will find as we talk, there are rom-coms that I adore that do some really good stuff that is worth watching. Yes, no, absolutely. There's a lot of good ones. And I'm not going to say that there aren't bad rom-coms out there, but their badness is not because of the predictability of the people getting together. The badness yeah. lies <laughs> in other things. Yeah. And, <laughs> And to to uh, say the same thing about the genres I go to, there are bad sci-fi space movies. Mm-hmm. Serenity, for instance, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. did not push the genre anywhere. So, mm-hmm. yep. so Mandy, there's lots of big stars, big names, people who've done significant works. What is your experience of Rob Reiner, Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, Nora Ephron? Um, less than people would ex. Okay, probably not less than people would expect for me, but considering <laughs> how famous all of these people are, um, less than I expected, honestly, just because I'm so familiar with all of these names that I expected to be much more familiar with their work. Rob Reiner, The Princess Bride, Misery, A Few Good Men. That's it. 
And now of course when Harry met Sally. It it is the big stuff at least, but I mean his his list is like three times as long as that and that's that's those the only ones you know? Yeah, yeah, Stand By Me. I really want to watch Stand By Me, but I haven't yet. I, it's actually on the list, I think. Why am I always surprised when you say you haven't seen something? I know you, Mandy. I don't know why it shocks me every time. You haven't seen that? Okay, I don't know. I'm going to have you over for a weekend, and I'm just going to like go through all the movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, let me just say, when, when we move to the Meg Ryan, it's going to shock you even more. Oh I mean, because I've seen Sleepless in Seattle and City of Angels. You've got male Kate and Leopold. Oh, okay. That's it. That's it. I haven't seen French Kiss. I haven't seen, um, oh, I'm sure there are other big ones. You know, well, French Kiss is Joe the best from the Volcano. I, yeah. <laughs> Joe versus the Volcano, don't watch that. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> French Kiss you have to see. Okay. Um. Let's see. Billy Crystal, obviously Princess Bride. I mean, because that's my favorite thing that he's ever done. Mm-hmm. I have actually seen City Slickers, you guys. I, you I don't know how. I have. I, I have Good. seen City Slickers, mm-hmm. Hamlet, and Monsters, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> haven't really. You know, he's another one of those. You know, you just kind of learn about him through osmosis. Mm-hmm. You know, he's so prolific in entertainment that you can't not know who he is, even if you don't watch his stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hasn't he hosted like every Oscar ceremony ever? He's hosted <laughs> one of everything. He's yeah. he's done everything <laughs> at least once. <laughs> yeah. And then Nora Ephron, I was actually surprised at how short her filmography was mm-hmm. because I've heard her name so much. But really, I've only seen the Meg Ryan movies, the Sleepless in Seattle, You've oh. Got Mail. And of course, I mean, I have seen Julia, Julie and Julia because that book is one of my all-time favorite books. So I had to see the movie. Don't see that movie, you guys. <laughs> no, half of that movie is great, though. The, the Meryl, Meryl Streep half. Stuff is fantastic. <laughs> yes, it is. And I'm yeah. so sad that the Amy Adams part is not because I love Amy Adams, but it, it yeah. wasn't good, you guys. She wrote a film called My Blue Heaven, which is a Steve Martin, Rick Moranis vehicle. And it's mm-hmm. it's so little known, but it's just delightful. It's Steve Martin doing something a little different than he normally does uh, as a mafia informant who's put into witness protection. And it's just lovely, the whole thing. Oh, and it's Joan, Joan Cusack as well, who we now like. Oh, Joan Cusack is fantastic. It sounds like we should put that on the list. <laughs> yeah, I, get, I find it really hard sometimes because it's not a pop culture film. Because most people have never heard of this thing. My Blue Heaven, no, absolutely, that's pop culture. I think you would. I think you could say that's pop culture. I think there's a historical value to My Blue Heaven. Okay, we will put it on the list. Lonnie said it's okay, so we're sure. doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm arbiter already. of what's in value. Sure. <laughs> I was going to do a whole thing of your experience of other films, but I think as we've just found, you've seen some of the the sort of pinnacle of, of rom-coms in the modern era but there's a couple of films that are very like or that, that when harry met sally is very like uh, annie hall and a film called a lot like love have you seen either of them i've never even heard of a lot like love okay but no i've seen neither of them they both take a very similar approach annie hall is amanda peet and ashton kutcher I mean, annie hall is uh, diane keaton and mm. woody allen yes yeah woody allen's best film Yes. No, well, I don't think I've ever seen a Woody Allen film, so okay. 
<laughs> yeah, you're not missing much. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I like Annie Hall. I don't really like Woody Allen in general. Okay. I do really, really like Diane Keaton, though, so that may She's be worth fantastic. considering. Yeah. The, he wrote the film for her, so okay. maybe want to consider. Um, right. When Harry Met Sally. Mandy, did you enjoy this film? Big surprise, you guys. I really liked it. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Okay. I really liked it. <laughs> I mean, we're going to talk about the rest, so... Okay, what uh, what did you take away? What was the most enjoyable? Was it performance, the chemistry, just the story? I think, honestly, it was the chemistry between Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal. I was surprised mm. by that because when I think of Billy Crystal, I don't think romantic comedy lead, <laughs> you mm. know? <laughs> um, I mean, he's the gravedigger in Hamlet. He's the old man in Princess Bride. He's not the love interest, you know, and and so I was really, really surprised um, by how much I ended up enjoying his character and the chemistry he had with Meg Ryan. I really loved the character arc that his that Harry had. I mean, I mm. advised mm -hmm. him at the beginning, and by the end, I loved him. You know, when a movie can take you from a place of of really not liking something, mm -hmm. and then bringing you to that place where you have emotion and genuine feeling and connection, I think it's doing something really, really well. And and when Harry Met Sally did that for me. Oh, yeah. I love the way for Billy Crystal, he's, they try to make him look younger in the way they dress him, but they <laughs> there's, there's no way they can make him look younger. He looks 40 in yes. that opening <laughs> sequence. But you're absolutely he the right. the oldest college senior ever. Yeah. He's just an ass. I mean, he, he did get the douchebag floppy hair that yeah. college seniors get, so mm -hmm. they tried. He's just got this, oh, I know what the world is like. I'm so clever and so wise and so on. <laughs> and he's just an <laughs> arse to her and to everyone around him. Yeah, and he's still kind of charming, though. Like, there's something about Billy Crystal, at least for me, that I find him... There's something about him that's charming, even when he's being a jerk. And in the beginning, he absolutely is mm. being a jerk. The way he's spitting the grape seeds on the window, which is like, <laughs> oh, just made me crazy. And this yes. whole like, I, but I like that she calls him on it though. Like he's a jerk, but we don't let it go without comment. You know, mm -hmm. she says, "Oh, so just because you, you know, you read the last page in case you're going to die, you think that makes you deep? It does not make you deep." And I like that she challenges him. She doesn't fall for that. You know, because all of that is affectation. Everything that Harry is on the ride to New York is all affectation. None of it is genuine. You know, mm. and she is sort of in in a slightly less genuine place as well because she's just not terribly honest with herself. But I think that she is trying. Like, there's a difference between putting on an act, putting on affectation to to mask your vulnerability, which is I think what Billy Crystal's character is doing. Harry is doing in the beginning, whereas I think for uh, for Sally, she just doesn't know herself that well and she's trying to figure it out like when he says you know you're going to New York or, you know, or what's happened to you tell me your life story she's like nothing's happened to me yet that's why I'm going to New York so that she can discover who she is so I think that she is immediately more likable but he is interesting you know even though he's not terribly likable and likability is not really necessarily the thing you go for with a character it's about sympathy it's about vulnerability and I think that 
when we see him put on that kind of affectation, it comes from an essential insecurity. And there's something about that 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 gets me, you know, like I, I sympathize with that, you know, and so I, I kind of like him even from the beginning. But yes, he is acting like a complete jerk. <laughs> well, I didn't like Sally at the beginning either. I, I hated both of them for different yeah. reasons. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, for all the reasons you just said about Harry, you know, he was an arrogant jerk and mm-hmm. and just cocky and, and I, I couldn't stand that about him. But Sally was way too controlling, very uptight and just kind of awful. I mean, they were both awful in their own ways. Mm-hmm. And he, his character arc, I think, was bigger than hers. Mm-hmm. But I just started to appreciate her. <laughs> in the movie you know I started to feel empathy for her and so that my dislike for her decreased Mm -hmm. but in the beginning of the movie I was thinking wow this is going to be a really long movie because I hate both of these people (laughs) (laughs) you know and I also thought that the movie I had no idea what the movie was actually about other than these two characters and so when they get into this car and they're road tripping from Chicago to New York I'm thinking oh this whole movie is going to take place during this college road trip And five minutes later, the road trip was over. And I was like, I don't really know what's going to happen in this movie because that was the shortest road trip ever. (laughs) And, And so I'm glad that we got more. You know, we got like two decades of life from these characters in this movie, which was fantastic. Yeah, and her character arc is wonderful where in in that beginning, she's not sure about talking. She's possibly making stuff up about her sexual history but feeling all awkward about talking about him hitting on her and, and getting a compliment through to the diner scene. <laughs> Which is quite an arc for a character to go from that to that in, in not a long amount of time. It is. I mean, it's, it's like 12 years, but yeah. <laughs> in the screen time. <laughs> in the screen but... time, no, it's not a lot of time. And yet, you know, we see that process for her. And mm. I, you know, it's not a lot of time in the movie, but I kind of feel it. You know, like I kind of, um, I kind of get that. I believe it, even though it's it's short. I really believe it. Well, I ended up feeling like in the first, I guess, flash forward when we went forward five years and we we see her in the airport with Joe. My initial thought was she's the oldest twenty six year old I've ever seen. <laughs> And I, I didn't feel that way when she was playing the, the you know, 21-year-old fresh out of college. But when she played the 26-year-old saying goodbye to this man and, and trying to show up Harry whenever he's there, she I don't know if it was just the way she played the character or the way they dressed her. I don't know what it was, but there was something that was just a little bit off there for me. I think it's the wig. Mm, that she's... wig was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> she lost that Farrah Fawcett hair she starts off with. Yeah, that was grandma hair. I mean, you know, <laughs> she's a journalist. She doesn't need grandma hair. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> I think you're right. It was the hair. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the shoulder pads, but that that's yeah. just a sign of the times, I guess. The, the 80s aged a lot of women. <laughs> One of the things the film uses as it goes through is the talking heads of older couples about how they got together and how their relationship worked over the years. And we see lots of different ways to love or stories to, to how they got to where they are what is our take on that is that a hopeful love comes in many ways for different people does that mean anything to our characters well i think it does at the end because um because we end with 
Harry and Sally doing that interview. Mm. So there's this this, you know, kind of a conceit that there's a documentary being made and Harry and Sally are the most interesting of the people that they're talking to about these, you know, love stories, you know, about their lives together. Um and so I don't know, like until you see Harry and Sally at the end, it feels like we're just thematically talking about love, but when they come in at the end, I feel like that sort of pulls it together. Mandy, what did you think about that? I liked it, but I'm also a sucker for romance. (laughs) And so I just really liked hearing all of these couples talk about how they've been together for 50 years. I was a little confused by it at first because we go from, I mean, we open with one of these interviews with Mm -hmm. an, an older couple who's been together for years and years. And then all of a sudden we cut to college aged Harry and Sally and they don't even know each other. They're just meeting for the first time. And and so there was a disconnect for me for how everything fit together. But knowing the formula for a romantic comedy, you know that this is a story about love or finding love, which is what all of those little interviews were about, were about how those couples found love. But until the end, and they tied it all together, it kind of felt like two separate things. Mm-hmm. But it still worked for me because I like hearing about love. Nice. I think that was our take on it over here too. Uh, I was interested on if there were different views of it because it's an interesting thing to have these people that we we never meet all the way through. They're just putting their spin on things. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was interesting that they were actual real interviews that Nora Ephron did with people Mm -hmm. while she was writing the screenplay. Um, The way I saw it worded was that when Nora didn't feel like writing one day, she would just go interview people, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. Uh, And then they, you know, they put them in the movie and I, Nora's writing style is just so interesting to me because Mm -hmm. they, they had no, no premise for this movie when they decided they wanted to work together. And so she just started talking to people and getting stories and interviewing people's lives and their relationships. And she like melded it all together into this story. And that takes some serious talent. Yeah, she's really incredible. Like the, one of the first things that Nora Ephron did was this book called um, Heartburn, which was about her um, divorce from uh, Woodward or Bernstein. I think it was Bernstein, Carl Bernstein, who was one of the, the pivotal people in the Watergate uh, reporting, mm. who basically brought down uh, Richard Nixon. Um, Mandy, because you're young, I'm telling you that. Because <laughs> you're British, I'm telling you that. Um, I am the old American who knows a little bit of that history. So, um, so I'll share, you know, with you my, my age. Um, but Carl Bernstein was like a big, big thing. And she lived in Washington with him and then their marriage fell apart and she wrote this, uh, this novel called Heartburn. And then that ended up being made into a movie. And there's something about her very particular perspective on human relationship that I think even though Nora Ephron hasn't done a lot of work, the work she's done has been very insightful and, and, and really incredibly sharp. And actually thinking on the, the story writing side of, of this as a film, Lani, I've been listening to your series, How Story Works, and you've talked about mm-hmm. uh, protagonist, antagonist, the goals and the conflict in a story. Is there an antagonist in this film? Oh, yeah. There's two of them. It's actually a dual story. <laughs> so okay. um, a lot of the stuff that I talk about in How Story Works, How Story Works is the beginning, like the very essential mm-hmm. beginning of narrative theory. But the thing that's wonderful about narrative theory is how incredibly flexible it is. And one of the things that we need in narrative theory is you have a protagonist with a goal and an antagonist with an opposing goal. You have mutually exclusive conflict, and that makes your story. In most stories, typically you have one protagonist, one antagonist, and the story follows um, as that conflict escalates and then resolves. And then that's how 
the story goes. But there are different ways of using, you know, narrative theory to tell a couple of different stories at once. George R. R. Martin, right? If anybody who's familiar with, there's this thing called Game of Thrones. Um, nobody's heard of it. I, oh, I really? Watch it. Sounds interesting. I can't. No, it really is. It really is. But George R. R. Martin does this where he tells a ton of stories from a ton of different perspectives. So we have a number of protagonists, all of whom have their own story going on. And then they sort of weave and dance around each other, but they all are protagonists with their own story. Um, and so that happens and that's a perfectly legit thing. The thing is, is that you have to have at least one protagonist and at least one antagonist. And in When Harry Met Sally, we have two sets. So we have, well, actually two people who are both protagonists and antagonists. We have two okay. inter conflicts that are running alongside each other and for him um, and the internal conflict is basically where you have a person who is at war with themselves that they that they want two things that are mutually exclusive and for Harry I think he wants to be happy and he wants to be connected with people um, but he also is is so afraid of vulnerability he is so afraid of of being hurt like that that he always holds a certain part of himself back and that makes it impossible for him to have the human connection that he wants, except with Sally. But he still can't, even when they, you know, finally we get to the end and they've had sex and, and they've had this connection. Um, even then, he still can't quite acknowledge that this is the big thing, that this is the thing that he wants, because it is incredibly vulnerable. And I think that when we open with him, there he is all this affectation to avoid that vulnerability. So I think we see him in his internal conflict right from the beginning. And with her, I think that her internal conflict is that even from the beginning, I think she's kind of intrigued by Harry. She likes him. Um, but she wants to basically prove that men and women can be friends. She wants to have this relationship and have it be something that shows her that the world is what she thinks it is, that it is a control thing for her. She has this incredible amount of control okay. um, that she has to have over all of her experiences and I think part of it is that she wants the um, she wants to you know be able to say men and women can be friends I have this friendship it's just a friendship and that's what it is you know but then we see them both throughout the movie we see these looks that they give each other we see the way that they look at each other when the other one is with someone else you know Emily is Aunt Emily oh my god you know like there's this whole thing they're both jealous of the <laughs> yeah. other people that they're with um, and, uh, and it becomes something where they are both at war with themselves, you know, um, because I think that, that she's afraid of what it will mean for their friendship if they get together. And he's afraid of that essential vulnerability. So you have these two stories that are escalating, you know, these two internal conflicts that are escalating side by side throughout the movie and they dance around each other. So sometimes it's her story being told. Sometimes it's his, um, sometimes it's both. You know, uh, it's really, really interesting. I, I like that structure a lot. Yeah, that's a really nice take on it. I hadn't obviously hadn't thought of it in that way. Well, usually it's one protagonist. I mean, the standard yeah. way of telling a story is one protagonist, three act structure, you know, anchor scenes, all this kind of stuff. And that's what I'm teaching and how story works, because that's like the beginning of it. But there are so many things that you can do with story. Story is essentially malleable. As long as you understand the principles behind why most stories are told that way, you can apply those principles in other permutations. You know, you can move it around like a puzzle rug, you know, once you understand how it works. And, but you have to understand how it works first. Well, taking all of that, let's let's talk about what the movie is actually trying to tell us. When I posted on Twitter that I was 
going to be watching this movie because we were going to do this show, it kind of immediately caused a divide (laughs) between people who love this movie and people who do not love this movie. Mm -hmm. And generally, the people who didn't like the movie, it was all because of what they think the movie is telling us and what the movie is, is about, essentially. So specifically, at Joss Ruckus and Vivian, who is uh, at Slayer, the, immediately jumped into the conversation and, and agreed with one another that this movie was terrible because the movie is telling us that men and women can't be friends. And I can understand why someone would come out of this movie with that impression, but my impression coming out of the movie was different. And so I wanted to see what you guys thought. Is that what you believe this movie is essentially telling us? Or did you get something else out of it? I don't believe in that core conceit, that men and women can't be friends. I I think that's him being an arse, but also because he's something of a ladies' man and not emotionally connected to these women that he meets up with. Right, but that's specifically the character of Harry. Um, what do you think that the movie as a whole is, is trying to tell us? I I think it goes back to the, the talking heads and think that there are lots of different paths to love, to an eternal relationship, some connection to someone. And it doesn't have to be the love at first sight bombshell. I've seen them and then two weeks later I have to... Uh, be with them it can take many different turnings on the road yeah i think that they they pinned the marketing on this idea can men and women really be friends like this is the core theme of the story that this is what it's about and i i think that that's the marketing and i think that in the end because harry and sally get together it feels like the movie is saying no you're right men and women can't be friends they're always going to want to be together you know that's always the way it's going to happen um and i think that that is that is patently untrue and people who get annoyed by the sense that this is what the movie is saying i completely see their point because i think that it is wrong and i think that the movie can absolutely be seen to be saying that I think that what this movie is, is it's a love story. So the idea of whether men and women can be friends is really immaterial because that's not what we're exploring here. And that's not what this is about. This is about the building of a relationship that turns into love and how that works. And that was always where this was going to go. I know originally uh, there was some playing around with the idea that in the end they wouldn't get together. But that's not what this movie is. That's not what this movie is about. That's not what this movie is saying. It's it's a love story. It's a romantic comedy. And so in the end, they have to get together because that's what the movie is about. I don't think it's about this statement that even it claims to be about. So I can see why people would be really annoyed with that. But also, I would also like to say and, and put forward the theory that when Harry met Sally is not the final authority on whether or not women can be friends, women, men and women can be friends, <laughs> Or people who are attracted to each other could be friends. Because can two lesbians be just friends? Can two gay men be just friends? Yes, it happens <laughs> and it's fine, you know? Um, and we see, I, I don't think that, that giving When Harry Met Sally the, the power and authority to make the final statement on whether or not this, this one idea is true or not, I don't think we need to give them that power. I think we can just enjoy that it is a love story. It is a romantic comedy and it hinged its marketing on this idea, can men and women just be friends? But I don't think that that's what this movie is really about. I agree with you 100%. I think that, I I do think that the movie shows us that men and women can be friends because 
Harry and Sally were best friends for like a decade before mm-hmm. there were romantic feelings. And I feel like because so much time passes in such a short film, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, because we go through 20 years in less than two hours, I think it can be really easy to gloss over some of that and and to really see, well, they get together, you know, like you said, Lonnie, so obviously men and women can't just be friends. But I, I feel like this movie just kind of looked at a lot of different things. And that's why... That's one of the reasons why I really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. So, Lonnie, this is one of your very favorite movies. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you cheat and tell me that all of it is your favorite moment performance <laughs> in line. So are there a few key scenes or you know lines or shots in the movie that were filmed really well that, that are your favorites? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's so much in this movie that I really do love, but I can't, I don't know why. I don't know why, because everybody's favorite thing is I'll have what she's having. Whatever. That's cute, but whatever. Um, but I think my favorite thing is when they're in, um, I think it's it's the Met, the, where they have the, the um, he's doing the pepper in my paprikash thing, and they're walking through the Egyptian, you know, um, display. And there's something about, the way that they're talking to each other and she's, you know, and he's saying, you know, let's go to the movies. And she's like, no, I have a date. And there's this whole kind of weirdness between them. And I love the subtlety of each of their performances in that moment. I think it's so like beautifully expressed and we see, you know, his hesitation, but he's like, no, 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 you should absolutely go out. And she's like, well, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe it would be weird because there's kind of this thing. And then he of course says, no, 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 we're just friends you know, um, which, which sets her back a little bit because she's obviously thinking there's something more going on there maybe and not sure about it. And, um, and I just, I love that scene. I love the way it's shot. I love that exhibit in the Met, which I think is beautiful. I go to the Met as often as I possibly can. I love all of it. And that's one of my favorite parts of it. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know why that scene for me has, has this lovely subtlety in the dialogue and in the performance. And, uh, and it's one of my favorite parts, which is weird. I don't think it's anybody else's favorite part of the movie, but for me, I really like it. That's fantastic. Uh, the, the part at the beginning where he's talking at her all weird and is making her repeat at yeah. him in that weird accent, that was all improvised. Oh, and if you... If you actually look really closely, when he starts, mm-hmm. Meg Ryan laughs and looks off camera mm-hmm. at Rob Reiner because she wasn't expecting it. And apparently he told her to keep going. And so they kept doing the scene and, and he kept it in the movie. Nice. <laughs> and that's how it you know led into it. And I just, people who can improv like that just have my utmost respect. I think it's amazing. Uh, Mandy, what bits of the film did you love the most? Oh, let's talk about the music first, Mm. because the music, the soundtrack of this thing was spot on, and it was done mostly by this little known musician that you may not have heard of named Harry Connick Jr. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't hear of him until then. He was like 20 years old when he did that. I know. And when I saw him in the the credits at the beginning, I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear this. It's going to be amazing. And it was amazing. But my favorite thing was interspersed throughout the whole movie was Gershwin's 
um, let's call the whole thing off song. <laughs> and it's all about opposites. And it's, you know, tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. And, you know, you do one thing and I do this other thing. And it just, that's what the movie is about. You know, it's Harry and Sally. And I, I thought it was brilliant because it's subtle. You know, they don't really call attention to it. It's just playing in the background. And I just, I loved it. Yeah, the songs are amazing. This is one of the movie soundtracks that I had at the time that was like always in my car. I was always listening to it. I love all of that music. And then, of course, we get to the the core theme. It had to be you, you know, which is almost like Mm. we don't have a choice. It had to be you. There's no way that either one of us is getting out of this. We might as well just accept our fate. This is done. You know, it was never not going to happen. You know, and I kind of like that. I love the way that that we're using these old standards to kind of define this progression of of what is essentially like a really powerful friendship and, and a love that's based in friendship that you can be in love and be friends at the same time. I will say I've never met anyone who says potato. <laughs> the tomato tomato I thing either. I can understand, but potato, no. No, yeah, you're just doing that because it rhymes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's still a fun song, okay? <laughs> yeah, you go ahead and make a rhyme with tomato, man. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> Uh, one of my other favorite lines was actually in the beginning uh, when Harry and Sally were two people I couldn't stand. And and Sally is trying to be all blustery about her, you know, sexcapades and how she is experienced. And, and you know, Harry's kind of calling her on it. And she's making up this reason for why it didn't work out. And she starts talking about her days of the week underpants and how her ex had gotten jealous because she didn't have a Sunday because he thought she left them somewhere. They don't make Sunday. Why not? Because of God. And I just burst out laughing, you guys. <laughs> it's very, and the thing is, the way that she delivers that line, like she's in her, I think, 30s at the time that she's doing this and she's playing a 22-year-old, but she looks like a little girl. The the naivete in her face, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because of God. You know, like it's just, it's so beautifully done. It really is. I love that moment too. And there's, there's no explanation for it. It just is. And then we mm-hmm. move on. Perfect. Yeah. I totally accept yeah. it. I totally buy it. It's fine. <laughs> and then you guys... I had no idea when I sat down to watch When Harry Met Sally that I was going to hear what may be the most romantic line ever uttered in the history of all romantic lines. Harry runs back to Sally and he says to her, And it's not because I'm lonely and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And my heart just melted into this giant puddle. And then I found out that wasn't even in the script and Billy Crystal improvised it. And then I died even more. (laughs) It's a wonderful, genuine, you know, expression. And I love, too, that it's it's not a polished line. You know, it's it's so and, and this is the thing that he's he's wrapped up in this affectation throughout the whole thing. You know, he's constantly in denial because he's trying to avoid exactly that vulnerability. 
you know, exactly that. I love you. That's it. I want to spend the rest of my life with you, you know, um, and the way that he delivers it is slightly awkward and slightly vulnerable. It's not this incredibly polished, you know, speech from Mr. Darcy. It's like this genuine expression and it's awkward and it's it's weird and he's all revved up and he's he's not even saying it. And he's saying it in this way that's like, it's just it had to be you. I don't have a choice. This is what I got. You know, like I'm just acknowledging this now. And it's it's a wonderful culmination of his story arc, of his internal conflicts, finally resolved in this moment where he's being genuine and vulnerable in himself. And that's the moment, of course, that breaks her down, which I love. Right. Well, that's why I liked it so much because it's not polished. It's, Mm -hmm. it's real. Yeah. And, and you, you feel the emotion behind it. You understand that he's just had this moment of epiphany that he wants to be happy. And so he has to change and, and he is doing that in this moment. And it just, it made me happy. And and my little heart melted in a puddle while I was watching it. And I just did not expect that to happen watching (laughs) When Harry Met Sally, because what do you think of with When Harry Met Sally? You think of the diner scene. Mm. And that's not romantic. (laughs) I mean, it's silly and it's funny. And, and so I was really surprised at, at the romance that we ended up having, especially considering we started out with two pretty terrible people. (laughs) And and on, the, almost the flip side of that, the bit not long before where he phones her and he says, What are you doing for New Year's? Are you going to the Tyler's party? Because I don't have a date. And if you don't have a date, we always said that if neither one of us had a date, we could be together for New Year's and it, it could, you know, one I can't do this anymore. I'm not your consolation prize. Goodbye. It's anti-romantic, but I just, I want to applaud her at that point. Like, yes, do you. Oh, you I love own it. That. Yeah. Yes. I love that because she's saying these are my boundaries. Mm. This is where I am and I'm not going to let you, you know, treat me like like I'm the one you get because you don't have anybody else, you mm. know? I love when she stands her ground, when she doesn't take his calls, you know, it's really really great. The mm. only thing that I don't like and this is a trope that happens in television and movies and it's been happening forever <laughs> when she slaps him. When they're at the party and they go in the back and they have that fight, mm. Even when she yells at him and, you know, and she says, oh, you took pity on me. Fuck you. You know, and the fuck you. I'm completely on board. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Go, sister. Then she slaps him. And I hate when women slap men. It drives me crazy. I hate it because physical assault. I don't care who is hitting who is not okay. It's not okay. You know, yell at him curse at him absolutely fine tell him that he's out of line but when because it's you know it's okay for women to slap men but it's not okay for men to slap women and you know my place is it's not okay for anybody to slap anybody i don't care if women are physically weaker than men it shows such an incredible lack of lack of respect for somebody else and part of this entire relationship part of what made it work so wonderfully and made me believe in it so much was that they always respected each other so the slap the dramatic slap from a woman to a man I know it's a trope I know it's a thing that we do you know I hate it it drives me crazy and that is the one moment in this film that just does not sit right for me well, it was also right before that when Harry called her a dog. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so there's, they were both disrespecting each other in that moment, I think. Mm-hmm. 
And I agree with you. I, I'm not a fan of that because their relationship had been built on that mutual respect. And mm-hmm. I don't know why it devolved so much from both of them in this moment. But I wasn't a fan. Although I will say this movie had two fucks in it and they both came from Meg and I loved that. Yes. <laughs> but we've talked about how, uh, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan and we've touched on the dinosaur scene, which is one of the most famous comedy moments from a, certainly from a rom-com but we've not mentioned Carrie Fisher who is, is wonderful in everything oh, and she's terrific in this I had no idea Carrie Fisher was in this movie and when I saw her name on the screen I was like oh my gosh yeah oh I love her in this movie and when I saw her in this movie the only thing that I knew her from was you know Star Wars she was Princess Leia so for me it was so strange to see her playing something so different but I love 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 that character she's so good i love the he's never gonna leave her of course he's not gonna leave her you're right you're right i know you're right like i've repeated that line in so many conversations with friends you know, <laughs> she delivers it so beautifully and i love the way i mean the the one thing where she's got in the beginning she's trying to set meg ryan up and she's got that little rolodex, rolodex and oh my god yeah. <laughs> Remember, you guys are too young, but remember Rolodex? Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that cracks me up. I do know? remember them. <laughs> and when she does that little, oh, married, and she flips the corner <laughs> down. Because, and flips it down because you're going to have to unfold that again when he gets divorced. Like, I love <laughs> Right, right. It's so great. Um, and she's she's fantastic. I adore that woman. I've always adored that woman. And the, the writing and performance when they go out on the double date and they're setting each other up with each other's friends. And the chemistry she has with, with Bruno, the, the chap playing Jess, it's, it's, it's instant. As soon as they start talking, you can see it. And you have this really uh, natural conversation between them. And then Billy Crystal talks to Bruno and he says, okay, just, just not tonight. Just be cool. She's in a, a, a bad place. And he goes, oh, of course, I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking tonight. I wasn't thinking tonight. And he says, I'll get a cab. She says, I'll get it with you. And they just dart off. It's hysterical. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. It is so great. And I love when they fight over the, the wagon wheel coffee table. <laughs> yes. I promise you, I will never want that wagon wheel coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their relationship was great. I, I really liked how... We started the movie with Carrie Fisher being a wreck in relationships because she's with this married man who she just keeps staying with him. She keeps saying she needs to leave him. And so she's the unstable one and Sally is the stable one. And then during the meat of this movie, that completely switches. And she, Carrie Fisher's character, becomes in a stable, loving relationship with Joe, Mm. uh, Jess. And we've got Sally and Harry who are both completely completely off the rails with all of these different relationships that they're going through. And I really liked that. Yeah, it was a nice reversal. It was a nice swap. And it shows that there's, you know, I think that Sally was was always like living on the ragged edge anyway, you know, like her, her need to control absolutely everything, you know, cause some people want it on the side. Um, I think that that <laughs> shows her as somebody who is, cause the thing is like, you can control, you can try to control as much of the world and your experience as you want. You will not control it. 
it will not happen. And so the people who are very, very controlling, um, and I, you know, I'm not speaking from personal experience at all, but I'm like the people who are very, very controlling <laughs> and trying to like make everything just so, um, the world falls apart and they don't, they just like, oh my God, like, what do I even do now if I don't have this under my complete mm. control? And it throws them out and it, and it makes them get very unstable. And so I think that it was kind of a nice thing to see her, you know, evolve from this almost false stability, almost a fake stability, a pretend stability, you know, into like this genuine, you know, tumble forward free fall where she just doesn't know what's going on. So I really liked seeing that in that character. Mm. And, and very much in the end, the, the final piece with them as the talking heads, and you can see it's each other's foibles that they love more than anything else. It's not that it drives him crazy. He loves the way she orders. It's mm-hmm. it's endearing to him, and it's a nice way to talk about the, the food and just interact and be friends. Is there anything else that we need to talk about when Harry met Sally? Have we covered everything that you had hoped we would cover, Lonnie? I think so. Yeah, I think we hit on everything. What about you, Matthew? Did you have anything else? Uh, talking uh, now, looking at other films that we might watch coming off this. Uh, there are there are a couple of films that are already on the list, so I'm, I'm not going to mention them. I know they are coming up. There's a film called Five Hundred Days of Summer. Have you seen that? Terrible movie. <gasps> I hate that movie. Ah. Oh. Well, okay. First of all, she's seen it. Hello. Well, she yeah, was. Something at least. Um, oh. Let's appreciate that. Oh. Can I tell you why I hate that movie? No, you've broken my heart too much. <laughs> I hate that movie because of one word. One word. Okay. The last line. The last word of the movie. Oh really? Yes. Oh, oh my god. It, it makes me like I totally understand why he doesn't end up with Summer because Summer's flaky and it was a transitional relationship and all of that stuff. But in the end, they imply that he's going to have a happily ever after with this new girl that he meets. And what's her name? Why don't you tell them what her name is, Matthew? Autumn. I can't stand that. <laughs> like it ruined the whole movie for me. Because so it should be called to your American sensibilities. <laughs> no, because because he had this wonderful time with Summer, and so now he has to move on to Autumn. And I I, I didn't like it. It just it didn't work for me, and it made me have ragey feelings for the whole oh. movie. <laughs> ragey feelings. Wow, that's so interesting. So, but up until that moment, though, you liked that movie. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Oh, it's just that. Well, um, okay. One of the things too is that we have this 500 days of summer, whatever. And then, you know, to go into autumn is so neatly tied up with a bow and it feels too like exactly what we're talking about with Harry's speech at the end. That seems to be like the absolute opposite of that. You know, it is so polished. It is so like, you know, speaking to theme. It is so perfectly slotted in that it feels disingenuous that it makes. And I think retroactively for you, and this is just my guess, I'm not a psychologist, but retroactively (laughs) for you, I think what it does is it shoots the whole movie into this very, you know, disingenuous thing. Like if, if I can't trust you guys not to pull that kind of crap at the end then the rest of it is just you selling me something that's very plastic and, and really not real. Am, am I hitting that? Is that is that what you're no, getting? Absolutely. I feel like they, once I heard that, I felt like, one, they thought they were being really super clever. And two, <laughs> the whole rest of that movie was written specifically so they could do that at the end. So they could do the super clever thing that doesn't pay off, that doesn't have value, and it makes everything feel like it, it, it's just bullshit, yes. right? 
And I, I, I personally hated it. And I know a lot of people really like that movie, but it just, it did not work for me. <laughs> That's so interesting. I'm so that sorry, one moment at the end can ruin the whole thing for you. No, I think this is fascinating. I've been wanting for years to do a podcast about pop culture therapy. That like the way that people react to certain things in stories, what that says about them, and what that says about their experience. And I find this actually so fascinating. <laughs> Matthew, I'm so sorry that I don't like this movie that oh. you like. Oh, a, a, a little Joseph Gordon-Levitt goes a, a very long way with me. I, I love watching him on screen, and he's fantastic. Certainly, oh, era, I love him. Yeah, this, this era like Louis so fab. Yeah, yeah. Hey ho! So, um, I'm yes. gonna weep in a corner. Whilst Lani, do you have any? <laughs> Lani, do you have any recommendations to to see to go on the list? Well, I mean, if we're talking about romantic comedies, obviously I can recommend romantic comedies all day. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if you have these already on your list, but I'm going to give you a few of the ones that I love and see if you've already... Did you look at Clueless? I feel like you did look at Clueless. I, I have seen Clueless, yes. You have seen Clueless. Generally right. speaking, ni- 90s teen movies I'm pretty solid on. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's one of the... I really, really like Clueless. I think it's good. French mm. Kiss... Um, you have to watch. It is the best romantic comedy that has ever been done. I love it. I, I watch it all the time and it stands up every time I watch it. It is on the list mm-hmm. and I'm okay. pretty sure I've got your name jotted down next to it to invite <laughs> oh, back on the show I for will, it. So I will watch that with you. I love French Kiss and I have a million reasons why I will defend it as the best written romantic comedy. Because it does a lot of the things that other romantic comedies, the reason like I love romantic comedies, it's my genre. Like I will love it even when it's bad. You know, it's basically like a dog to me. Like your dog you love even when they poop in your shoes, right? You know, <laughs> so I have this thing about romantic comedies that the, the romantic comedies is my dog genre like and Matthew for you it might be sci-fi is your dog <laughs> genre like even when it poops in your shoes you're gonna like it right so um so for me romantic comedy absolutely does that but I understand the reason why a lot of people don't like the poopy shoes like I understand that there are things that that I'm taking that metaphor really far um but there are things that that in romantic comedies that they do that they do really poorly there's you know the I'm hot you're hot let's be hot together mm. um there's a movie called Hitch which actually is, is fascinating because it's one of these movies that is terrible for half of it and wonderful for half of it. Um, sort of like Julie and Julia. Like, you know, the, the right. one story is great and the other story is, is just horrible. Um, and we kind of have that situation in Hitch, which I think is fascinating. There's so much to unpack there because of the bad stuff. The bad stuff gives you really interesting discussions to have. So Hitch is something that I would actually recommend, even though half of it is terrible, because half of it is terrible. Um, you know, another one is I don't know if you've seen While You Were Sleeping. I have seen it. It's been a really, really long time. I went through a Sandra Bullock phase. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And Two Weeks Notice, actually, you know, we mentioned that before as an example of a bad romantic comedy. But actually, Two Weeks Notice, if you take out, there's like three scenes in Two Weeks Notice that are absolutely indefensible. If you edit them out in your head... The movie is wonderful, <laughs> aside from those three scenes. Um, so that's a really good one, too, and that can have interesting conversations. But I got to tell you, Mandy, like when it comes to romantic comedies, you and I got to sit down. We got to talk. You know? All right. You got to watch some of these because there's some really, really great stuff out there. Okay. 
I will definitely uh, keep you in mind for when we come up against some romantic comedies. Though I will say I am more well-versed in the romantic comedy genre than I am in most others. This one slipped through primarily because it's from the 80s. Right. And I just have had no experience with with the 80s. Well, there's a movie called The Sure Thing that I love that's from the mid 80s. It's John Cusack. One of my favorite movies. Terrible. Like there's so many things in it that are so bad, but I love it. It poops in your shoes, but I love it. I I don't even think I've heard of that one, but I am a big fan of John Cusack. And so I'm trying to remedy. It's fantastic. Uh, I mean, it's terrible, but it's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for those suggestions. And we will definitely, definitely keep you in mind for future romantic comedies. Oh, do please. (laughs) I love our listeners and I love getting feedback from our listeners and I love highlighting that feedback. So this week we had um, some responses from three of our shows because uh, some folks are actually catching up. Um, we we have a lot of folks who listen to the show who are like me and haven't seen things, which blows me away because I thought I was alone in my deprivation, but I'm not. And, and folks don't like to listen to us talk about these movies they haven't seen because of spoilers. Uh, so these are from, you know, some, some older episodes. Uh, Stephanie Marie, who is at I'm Tacular on Twitter, uh, really enjoyed our discussion about The Dark Knight and is very interested in my thoughts on other DC moving forward. And I don't know that we have other DC on the list right now other than The Dark Knight Rises. Is there other stuff that we were going to put on the list, Matthew? Um, potentially Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman if we have to. Um, that was, so that's a no. That was, that was Suicide Squad <laughs> at the end, which just gets worse every time I see it. Um, which I think you tried. Suicide I, Squad? I did try it. It was, uh, when, when we were on the cruise a few weeks back, you know, they give you this one movie channel that just plays movies over and over and over again. And Suicide Squad was one of those movies. And we didn't finish it. We turned the TV off. <laughs> oh. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. So, Stephanie, you may or may not get more conversation about DC uh, once we actually finish the Christopher Nolan trilogy. So, If they start making films worth watching again, then maybe. Um, <laughs> I well, think... We have been talking about doing a, a mini episode about Wonder Woman mm. that we may release on Patreon. So, you know... We're, we're still talking about that. We may do it. We may not. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think we should probably do Batman vs. Superman because there was a good film in there desperately trying to get out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Alan Ostrom at Chipper Allen sent us a response to our episode on Schindler's List. And he said, amazing job, you guys. Your best episode yet. You handled it just right. And it was really affecting. And I really appreciate that because that was a tough conversation mm. and it was a tough movie and it was it was hard to talk about it and we wanted to do it in a way that was respectful and appropriate for the material. And so I'm really glad to know that we succeeded. Yeah, it was it was a tough conversation because the internet dropped out once or twice so we had to <laughs> restart it in places. Um, yeah. Which really didn't help it flow, but it came out really nicely, so that's good. It did, it did. <laughs> a little behind the scenes for you there. <laughs> <laughs> And lastly, Jan M. at JLMO uh, 
was just like me in the graduate, and she said she raged pretty hard to find out Anne Bancroft is a year younger than her. And and I'm right there with her. That I I was not okay with finding out that Anne Bancroft was only 35 when she played Mrs. Robinson. So, yeah, we're right there in solidarity. So if you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PCDeprived on Twitter. You can also email us using podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can comment on this post on eloquentgushing.com. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy K. And I'm at Matthew Vos. Lani, where can people find you in the world? Oh, people can find me. I'm at Lonnie Diane Rich on Twitter. You can also find me at chipperish.com, which is the website from which I do all my podcasts. So. Go check it out. There's some wonderful stuff for everyone to find there. Something for everyone, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> please also remember to rate and review us on iTunes uh, to help people discover the show and let us know when you review. As we said up top, we're now on Patreon, so you can find us patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And from just $1 a month, you can gain access to exclusive content and further rewards. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where Matthew and I will talk about the final season of Farscape. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And I have a number of men friends, and there is no sex involved. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.